You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Whitefields. We're so glad that you're here with us worshiping this Sunday morning. Could you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah? It's one of the big prophetic books right there, kind of in the middle of your Bible. If you uh, need to use the table of contents, don't be shy. We just want you to get there. Jeremiah chapter 1. And uh, if you use a app on your phone to read the Bible. We recommend you use the YouVersion Bible app just because in there, if you sign in and go in the menu and all that, you can get all the uh, slides that we have on the screen. They're on your phone and you can take notes in the app. You can, um, you know, you can share things with friends. Just a great way to interact with the sermon. So we encourage you to do that. So Jeremiah chapter one this morning, I'll begin by reading our text and then we'll uh, get into our study. So let's begin by reading Jeremiah chapter one, verses four through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put, his, put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck out and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning as we come to it and we study it, Lord, we want to truly remember Uh, Jeremiah, and Lord, would you help us that we would learn from him? Lord, would we hear your word to us through these words that we read in the book of Jeremiah this morning? Lord, we we know that you have something to teach us. We know that you have areas where you'd like to challenge us and where you'd like to bring comfort perhaps into our lives. Lord, we all come here with different needs, and you know exactly what those are. And we just ask, and we come with expectant hearts, asking and seeking, expecting you to speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear and respond to what you're saying. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed courage? Have you ever needed courage to do something? You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is what you do when you are afraid. It's when you do something, they do the right thing in spite of your fear of doing that thing. You know, maybe there's a situation even in your life right now where you need courage today. You need courage to do what is right, not to do what is easy, not to take the easy way out. Maybe you're afraid of what will happen if you do that thing, right? That's, that's where courage comes in. Maybe you have other fears related to that, fears that hold you back in different areas. Maybe a fear of failure or a fear of rejection or maybe some, a fear of some kind of pain. In all of our lives, there are times when we need courage to face things that we're afraid of and do the right thing in spite of our fears. And the question is, where can we get that kind of courage Well, today we're going to be looking at a man whose life was characterized by courage. And as we look at his life, what we're going to see is we're going to see the source of his courage and how those same things which were a source of courage for him are available to us in Jesus Christ today. So the title of today's message is A Recipe for Courage. And currently we're in a series called Remember the Prophets. We've been in this. This is our fifth week in this series. And where the idea comes from for this series is the book of James, the letter of James, Chapter 5, verse 10, where James writes this. He says, My friends, remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and take them as examples of patient endurance under suffering. 
And so for the first few weeks of this year, what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at some of the prophets. We've been doing exactly what James tells us to do. We've been remembering the prophets and not focusing primarily on the words they said as much as we are focusing on who they were as people. And as James says there, what we can learn from them as examples that we can put into practice in our own lives. And today we come to the prophet Jeremiah. We've been studying through the prophets chronologically, which you might have noticed that the the way they're organized in your Bibles is not chronological. It's organized by theme and it's organized by size. But in our study, we've been going through chronologically to kind of help you get, wrap your mind around this whole period of the Bible, right? When it talks about these different prophets and the kings and all the things that were going on. Today we come to the prophet Jeremiah. And you know, Jeremiah wasn't the greatest prophet. That title was reserved for the prophet Isaiah. He's known as the greatest prophet. And nor was Jeremiah the most successful prophet. You know, you think about Jonah was probably the most successful prophet as far as number of converts are concerned. But Jeremiah most certainly was the most courageous prophet. So he wasn't the greatest, he wasn't the most successful, but by far he was the most courageous of all the prophets. His 40-year ministry was a tremendous display of faithfulness and courage in the face of incredible opposition. And as we look at the life of Jeremiah, I'm going to show you three distinct sources that we can identify from where he got that courage that he had. And I want you to see that these three things are available to us today, even more so, in fact, in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. The recipe for courage and the secret to Jeremiah's courage, we see it in three things. Number one, and he had an awareness of his calling. He had an awareness of his calling. Secondly, he had a concern for the truth. We're going to talk about what that means. A concern for the truth. And thirdly, he had an understanding of the big picture. An understanding of the big picture. This book begins in chapter one with these words. It says this. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Ananoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So Jeremiah began his reign in the time of King Josiah. Now we talked a little bit about Josiah last week when we studied Habakkuk, so I won't go into all the details, but King Josiah was one of the greatest kings who ever ruled in Judah. We read about uh, Josiah that when he was 16 years old, he began to seek the Lord. And it says that when Josiah was 20 years old, he ordered that the temple be restored. It had gone into uh, disrepair. It had been unused for several years. And it says there in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, which is where we can read about that, it says that as they were restoring the temple, there was a priest by the name of Hilkiah who discovered a copy of the book of the law. In other words, he discovered a copy of the Bible there in the temple. See, the people had so badly neglected the word of God and worship in the temple that they had literally misplaced the Bible, apparently the only Bible left in the whole country, and they forgot where it was for years. Right? And that priest, Hilkiah, he found the book of the law as they were renovating the temple and getting it back ready for use. And he brought that Bible to King Josiah and Josiah opened it up and he read it. And when he read it, it says that he wept aloud because he realized how far the people had gone away from God by neglecting his word. And so Josiah made sweeping reforms. He was determined that as a nation, they would once again get back to that place of living according to the word of God. Now that man, Hilkiah, remember the priest who found 
the book of the law in the, in the temple during the time of Josiah? Well, check it out. Verse 1 of Jeremiah. That was Jeremiah's dad, right? Jeremiah's dad was the guy who found the book of the law in the time of Josiah. But those good times under King Josiah, they didn't last very long. It says there in verse 3 of chapter 1 here in Jeremiah. It, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So the good king Josiah, what happened is he ended up dying an untimely death. He died young in battle and his sons took his place uh, on the throne of the country. But unlike their father, see Josiah's sons did not share their father's heart for God. They were in fact exceedingly wicked and all the reforms that Josiah had tried so hard to implement and to make uh, for the good of the people of Judah, they reversed all of them and they led the country in a terrible direction. In fact, they went even deeper into wickedness and idolatry and corruption than they had been even before the time of Josiah. Until finally, you know, what happened is that God allowed the Babylonian empire to come in and conquer Judah. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But here's what happened. God said, okay, I'm going to remove my hand of protection. He's going to send the Babylonians to attack Judah. They attack Israel. They destroyed the temple. And they carried off the people into exile, into captivity. The bulk of Jeremiah's time as a prophet happened during those evil times, you might call them. Those, those times that were leading up to the exile. And Jeremiah, throughout this whole time, he spoke God's word to the people. He called them to repentance. He warned them about what was going to happen if they continue going on this path that they were on. And as you can imagine, Jeremiah's message wasn't very popular, right? It wasn't very popular. Basically, nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody was listening. And at one point in chapter 36, we even read that Jehoiakim took the, the scroll that Isaiah had been writing and he cut it into pieces with a knife and he threw it in the fire. That's about how uh, highly Jehoiakim regarded the word of God. And so Jeremiah's ministry was not well received at all. He preached and nobody listened, right? Like if he was a pastor, there's nobody attending his services, right? Like worse than that, uh, people attacked him. They attacked him verbally and they even attacked him physically until finally at one point uh, he was beat up by a group of people until he died. And that's how he died, in exile and he died. So I think we can agree that Jeremiah needed courage to do that, to go through all those things, right? You need courage when you're facing that much opposition, when your message is that unpopular, when you're being attacked and, uh, and slandered and even physically beaten. You know, um, imagine preaching for 40 years, and that's your job. You're a preacher, and you're doing exactly what God told you to do, and God, he, God says, say this, and you say that. And what do you get in return? Insults, injuries, zero encouragement, zero positive response, attacks, and finally death. Well, cool, sign me up, right, for ministry, if that's what ministry is. Nobody wants to sign up for that, right? Now, there are a few things that we learn by looking at Jeremiah's 40-year ministry. There are a few things we can learn. And number one is this. It is entirely possible to do exactly what God wants you to do and not experience success in the way our society usually defines success. So it's possible to do exactly what God wants you to do and not experience success in the way that our society tends to think about success. I mean, some people have this idea, right, that as long as you do what God wants you to do, 
then everything in your life will always be moving up and to the right, right? It's going to be increasing. It's going to be improving your uh, experience. You will just experience ever-increasing success in your job and in your family. But if you read the Bible for about five minutes anywhere in the Bible, you'll find out that that is actually not always the case, not necessarily the case, right? The Bible's full of stories of people who did what God told them to do, but it didn't always make their lives easier. Like, I, th I think about Jesus' disciples. Think about this. Before they had Jesus, many of them had jobs, right? And then they end up following this homeless rabbi for three years who says, I don't even have a rock to use as a pillow. And then they end up uh, being persecuted and chased from town to town. And eventually, all of them get killed except for one, right? And so let me ask you, you know, were those disciples successful, well, it depends how you measure success, right? That really is the question. How do we measure success? They didn't make a lot of money. They didn't have successful careers, you might say. But they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. So in that sense, yes, they were successful. So how about Jeremiah? Was Jeremiah successful? Well, not if you count success in terms of popularity, not if you count success in terms of numbers of converts. In those senses, he was absolutely not successful. But Jeremiah was faithful. He was faithful. He did exactly what God called him to do. And in that sense, you can say, if that is the measure of success in God's eyes, well, then he was absolutely successful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul the Apostle says this. He says, you know, as Christians, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And he said, you know what's required of a steward? What's required of a steward is that they be found faithful. You know, a steward is kind of like, you can think about like the valet at the parking lot. That's a steward, right? You give him the keys to your car, but you're not giving him your car. You're just letting him, you know, hold on to the keys for a while and watch over your car for a short time while you're away. That's what a steward is. It's somebody who's been entrusted with something of great value. And eventually every steward will be called on to give an account of what they did with what was entrusted to them. And the question for us, the question for you today is this. What has God called you to do? What has God entrusted to you? And the, the next question, are you being faithful with it? Because that is how God measures success. The second thing we learned from Jeremiah and his 40-year ministry is this. You may never know the impact you had. Do you know that? You may never know the impact you had. See, as far as Jeremiah could tell, if you were to ask him, hey, Jeremiah, tell me, has there been any positive fruit at all from your ministry? Has anybody listened? Has anybody responded? He would have said, nope, zero, nobody, nada. But we know something, actually, that Jeremiah didn't know. And do you know what that is? In the book of Daniel, which we're going to be studying next Sunday, uh, we read about four young people. They were from Judah, which is where Jeremiah was from, and they got carried off to Babylon. And those four young people were full of conviction. They had incredible hearts for God. They wanted nothing to do with the idolatry of Babylon. They were unwilling to compromise. See, Jeremiah felt like there had been no positive fruit from his ministry at all, that nobody listened, that nobody responded, and yet we know that there were at least four young people who did listen, who did respond. They went to Babylon. They made a difference. And the lesson for us is this. You may never know the impact that your words, that your work has as you faithfully do what God has called you to do. And so do not grow weary in doing good. Let this encourage you that Jeremiah felt like no, nobody listened. He had no positive response, but we know in fact that he did.
Jeremiah was incredibly courageous. And so that gets us to the question, where did Jeremiah's courage come from? So let's begin with the first uh, source of Jeremiah's courage, which is an awareness of your calling, an awareness of your calling. See, Jeremiah knew that he was called by God. We read this verse already a couple times now in service, but we'll read it again. Verse four, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You see, one of the reasons why Christians care about children in the womb is because the Bible says a lot about how human life begins in the womb and that God is actively involved in the process of forming us and shaping us and even calling us and knowing us during that time when we're still in the womb. Uh, Jeremiah was acutely aware of the fact that God had called him to be a prophet. And I'll tell you this, that sense of calling, that sense of knowing that you're called by God to do something is very important, especially in times of discouragement, especially when you run against hardship. You know, when I was a missionary in Hungary, I had this very strong sense that God had called me to be there and to do what I was doing there. And when I moved here, that, the same thing, to pastor this church, I had a very strong sense that God called me to be here. It wasn't like I had nothing else to do, right? Like, oh, okay, I guess I'll go do that. No, it was a very strong sense that God had called me to be here. And that awareness, I got to tell you, has been incredibly helpful, particularly in times where we face different challenges. Because when you know you're called, it, it absolutely changes the mentality with which you approach things, especially when things get hard. So let me ask you this. What has God called you to do? What has God called you to do? Well, let me, let me help you with that. Maybe you're like, well, I don't know. Well, let, let me help you with that. There are a few things you can know for sure. If you're a parent, that is a calling from God. If you're a mom or a dad, you are called by God to love those kids and to teach them and to help them understand the gospel and to help them know the way of Jesus. If you have a job, right, like if you're employed in any way, your job is one of your primary callings from God to serve him and to serve others. See, we tend to use the words uh, job, occupation, and vocation. We tend to use those interchangeably, right? Like we'll, we'll talk about like vocational training means training for a particular job or career. We, we use those words interchangeably. But did you know that that word vocation actually has a very rich Christian history? Like Christians own this word vocation. You know why? We, we have used this word historically in Christian history to describe the uniquely Christian view of work. Because you know why? The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means calling, right? So for Christians, we have this history of seeing our work, not just as something we do to get a paycheck, but actually as a calling from God to serve him by serving others, to do his work in the world by serving other people. See, some people have this idea that if you want to serve God, then you need to quit your so-called secular job and then go and work in a church or a Christian ministry. But the Bible teaches us that almost all kinds of work can be a calling from God to love our neighbor and serve them in some way. Now, the reason I say almost all kinds of work is because there are indeed some ways of making money which do not benefit other people, right? They actually maybe even harm people or take advantage of them. And so there are some industries or, or ways of making money. And if that's the case, you should not do those jobs, even if they give you a paycheck. You know, sometimes you'll meet people who are really, you know, they're racking their brains and they're like really stressed out trying to figure out what is God's calling on my life? They're trying to find their calling, so to say. And they're asking God, God, what is your calling on 
on my life. Would you please show it to me? But you know, Christians in the past, in history, they, they would have pushed back against that idea that you have to somehow, that your calling is something mysterious that, that somehow you got to figure out or find. You know what they would say? They would say, well, what do you mean you don't know what your calling is? God's calling in your life isn't something mysterious or difficult to discern. It's whatever your situation in life is right now. If you're a mother, then your calling is to be a mother. If you're a student, your calling is to be a student. If you're an electrician, your calling is to be an electrician for the glory of God and for the good of other people. You see, that calling can change. And there's a freedom to change what you do. But whatever you do, the point is this, that whatever you do, you are to view it as a calling from God to serve him by serving your neighbor in that context. See, what transforms a job into a calling is faith. What transforms your job into a calling is faith. By faith, you can see your daily activities and your work as tasks given to you by God for his glory and for the benefit of others. See, but there are other callings that God might have on your life as well. Aside from family and aside from work, if you have if you're here today and you have never truly put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, if you've never truly embraced the gospel, then God is calling you to do that today. Do you know that? God is calling you to do that. God is calling you in to relationship with him. If you are a Christian, God has a calling on your life as well. God's calling in your life is for you to take part in his mission in the world. At the end of each of the four gospels, Jesus says these words to his disciples, you know, he says like in the gospel of John, just as the father sent me, so now I am sending you. You know, the word sent in Latin is the word missio from which we get our word mission. In other words, Jesus is saying the father gave me a mission and now I'm passing that mission on to you. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He said, go into the world and make disciples of all people. See, to be a Christian means to be somebody who has been called by God to take part in his mission, called by God to take part in his mission, to play some role in his work of bringing redemption and salvation to the world. And so my question for you today is this. God is calling. I've just given you like four different ways. God is calling. The question is this. Are you responding? Are you going to respond to his call? Are you going to respond to his call to enter into relationship with him, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and not in yourself? Are you going to respond to his call to view your work, not just as a paycheck uh, but, or, or as a stage in life, but as a calling from God to honor him and to serve others in practical ways through your work? Are you going to respond to his call to take his mission and be part of his mission in the world? By the way, if you're interested in, in some of our needs here at the church or ways that you can get plugged in and get on board and, and join a team and be part of uh, the work that we're doing here, we'd love to help you be part of that. On your bulletin, there's a rip-off sheet at the end. You can write on there and it, you'll notice there's a box that says, I want to serve. Just check that box, put it in the offering box, and we will uh, connect with you. But look at how Jeremiah responded. When God called him to this, to this particular ministry, how did he respond? Look at what he says in verse 6. I said, Oh, Lord, uh, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Jeremiah responded to God's call with an excuse, right? He was quick to tell God why he couldn't do what God was asking him to do. He's like, oh, Lord, like I would totally do that, right? But see, here's the thing. I can't uh, because I'm too young and I'm not good at talking and stuff. So sorry, 
right? And let me ask you this. That, Jeremiah gave a disqualifying excuse. He said he had an excuse that disqualified him. Let me ask you this. What is your disqualifying excuse? What is the thing that you say, oh God, that's why I can't do what you're asking me to do is because of this, right? What is the disqualifying excuse that you tend to give? Maybe, maybe it's, uh, oh Lord, like I would totally do that and all, except see, I'm just super busy. Isn't that our go-to as Americans? that we're super busy. I mean, how many times do you have that conversation? That's basically like every conversation I have with anybody, right? Is, is uh, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, just super busy, right? Like super slammed, life is crazy. That's just our go-to as Americans. We, we wear that as a badge of courage. We're, we're like proud of ourselves. We feel at least we're not being lazy if we're staying busy. And, and I know how that goes. In fact, that's me a lot of times, right? That's me telling people, oh, I'm super slammed, I'm super busy, and it's true. But here's the thing. Our priorities reveal our loyalties, don't they? So your priorities reveal your loyalties. And maybe like Jeremiah, you say, oh, well, that, that's my uh, disqualifying excuse. I'm just, I'm just too busy. I would totally do it, but, you know, I, I just don't want to overcommit. Or maybe like Jeremiah, you just don't think that you have the skills or the abilities to do what God has called you to do. Look at what God says to Jeremiah in verse 7. Basically, he's like, hey, I don't accept your excuse, right? Like, no thanks. But God said to me, it says, verse 7, Do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them. I will deliver you, declares the Lord. I am with you to deliver you. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. God didn't only call Jeremiah to do this work. He also equipped him to do this work, and he promised to be with him every step of the way. I think that for many of us, just thinking about Colorado and our culture here, I think we can kind of relate to Jeremiah in the sense of, of God calling us and us pushing back. Because as a society, I'll have to tell you, like, being part of the society, you know, and, and also seeing it a little bit from the outside, I'll tell you this, we tend to avoid commitment, right? That's Colorado, it's Western American culture. We're very commitment averse as a society. Uh, we, we live in the most individualistic society that has probably ever existed in the history of the world. And one of the things we fear is losing our autonomy, is, you know, losing our autonomy. And so for us in here, in, here in Colorado, I think that one of the things we need courage for Sometimes we need the courage to step out and commit ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus and to his mission. I think we need, you know, in other words, we don't need the courage to fight the fight as much as we need the courage to get into the fight in the first place, right? To put down our, step over that line and put down our yes and be wholeheartedly engaged. One of the sources of Jeremiah's courage was his awareness of his calling and God's promise to be with him and equip him. And those same things are available to us in Jesus. So the second source of courage we see in Jeremiah's life is a concern for the truth, a concern for the truth. Now, when I say that Jeremiah had a concern for the truth, notice this, it manifested itself in two ways, in two ways. The first was that Jeremiah's concern for the truth manifested itself in a genuine concern for people. He had a genuine concern for people. In chapter 2, Jeremiah speaks these words. In chapter 2, verse 13, he, he's speaking the words of God, but writing them in his own words. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. So Jeremiah looked at his people, the people of Judah, and he was able to see what God saw when he looked at them. 
Here they were, chasing after sin, chasing after idols and false gods. And Jeremiah could see that all of these things were going to leave them empty and disappointed and even ruin them. And this image he uses to describe it is the image of a broken cistern. A cistern being a container for fresh water. A container for fresh water. Now that was very important to the people who lived in Judah because they lived in the desert. right? That southern part of Israel is all desert. And they used these cisterns to hold and collect the, the fresh water so that they would have water to drink and to give their animals when it was dry. And water throughout the Bible speaks of satisfaction and vitality. It speaks of satisfaction and vitality. And so by talking about broken cisterns, he, he's talking about something that promises satisfaction, that promises vitality, but it only leaves you empty and dry. And ultimately, that leads to death. And this is the picture Jeremiah is using to describe what's going on with the people of Judah. This is what sin is. It's turning from the source of living water and trying to create cisterns on your own. But they're broken. They leak and they leave you empty, dry, and they eventually lead to death. And Jeremiah's heart, for, he just breaks. His heart breaks for these people. That's why in chapters 4 through 6, Jeremiah looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. So if you ever heard of Jeremiah called the weeping prophet, it's because in chapters 4 through 6, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because he truly cares about these people. He wants to see them experience life and joy and true life, right? True vitality, true hope. And yet they've settled for these counterfeit things. And that's what sin is, by the way. It's cheap counterfeits that promise all the benefits and don't deliver on them. You know, one of the things that, that gave Jeremiah courage in the face of the opposition he faced was he genuinely cared for people. That's what gave him courage. He genuinely wanted people to know true freedom, true fulfillment, and he knew that the source of that was in the living God himself. The second way that Jeremiah's concern for truth manifested itself was that he had a conviction about the word of God. We, a conviction about the word of God. So we read in Jeremiah 20, one of my favorite passages, you know, he's pouring out his heart to God. He's saying, God, it's so hard. I've been receiving so much opposition. People criticize me. They attack me. And, and he says there in chapter 20, he says, I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everybody mocks me. He says, the word of the Lord has been for me a reproach and a derision all day long. But then he says this, but if I say to myself, I will not mention him, I will not speak anymore in his name, then there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Right? One of the things that gave Jeremiah courage was that he knew that these words were not just his opinions, but they, they were the very word of God, that they carried with them their own authority, right? Since these are the words of God and not his own opinions, he can be bold to share it, even if he faces opposition for it. And see, here's the thing. If you deeply care about people, then you will use the truth not as a weapon to cut people and to hurt people. You will use the truth as a balm to heal people and restore people. See, have you ever seen that? People who use the truth like it's a weapon, right, to hurt people. But the gospel, right, the gospel is this. We want to share the, the good news, the truth of the gospel, but we want to do it in a way that brings healing, not pain. And that's what we see when you truly care about somebody. That's how you deal with truth. You deal with it out of true concern, but an unwavering conviction about the truth of God's word. Thirdly, we see here this. The final source of Jeremiah's courage that we see is that he understood the big picture. 
So I heard a story recently of a church in New York City in Manhattan, and it has some very old photographs from, the, from over 100 years ago. And they're hanging in their fellowship hall, and these are photographs of members of their church who, who lived, you know, in the early 1900s, and of course they've now passed away. And one of the pictures there in this church is the picture of an older woman uh, who attended that church at that time, and she died on the Titanic, right? So they have this picture of this woman who was part of their church. She died on the Titanic. And what's interesting about this woman is that she is one of only four people who died on the Titanic who had a first-class ticket. You know why? Because the people who had first-class tickets were the first people they put on the lifeboats. They, they got priority on the lifeboats when they found out that the boat was sinking, and all but four of the first-class passengers on the Titanic survived because the first-class passengers got saved, right? Whereas the second- and third-class passengers were the ones who died. But what happened with this woman is that she gave up her seat, and the story was told by the people who, who got her seat on the lifeboat. They came back and they told her story that she gave up her seat on the lifeboat to a woman with, with two small children um, because they were second or third class passengers and they weren't going to get a place on the lifeboats. And so by doing so, she gave up her life in order to save these people. And the question that I want to ask is, where do you get that kind of courage? Like, how do you do something like that? Because courage doesn't mean getting rid of your fears, right? Courage, some of our fears are good. Like, if we got rid of our fears, that would be kind of foolish, right? Like, if you've ever been around a toddler who doesn't have any fears, they're like a huge liability, right? Because some fears are good, right? I remember when my daughter was two, when we lived in Hungary, we had this staircase, and she would try to fly her, like, little airplane car thing with wheels. She would try to fly her airplane off the stairs, like, three times a day, and we had to build a gate and stop her because she had no fear at all. She wanted to see what it was like to go down the stairs on her airplane. See, it, to not not have fears is not a good thing, right? But courage doesn't mean not being afraid. It means doing the right thing even when you are afraid. And for this woman on the Titanic, right, like her courage came from the fact that she understood the big picture. She knew that because of what Jesus had done for her, because she was his, that, that what awaited her after this life was eternal life. And that big picture understanding and the hope of the gospel enabled her to be courageous even in the face of death. He, Jeremiah understood the big picture. In fact, Jeremiah understood that God's promise for his people was not just that he would bring them back one day from captivity. He understood the even bigger picture. He understood the even better promise, the hope of the gospel. See, he talked about it in chapter 31. We read some of this earlier, but let me read this to you again. Jeremiah speaks to the people and he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That old covenant he's talking about, that's the law that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Israel failed to live up to God's law, God's standards, God's requirements. And you know that that's no different for us either. None of us have lived perfect lives. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. But here's the good news. Check out what Jeremiah says next, starting in verse 33 of chapter 31. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, this is the ultimate hope. 
that God will forgive our sins. And when this life is over, we will be welcomed into everlasting life. And knowing that big picture gives us incredible courage to face whatever challenges, whatever fears we might have in this life. You know, there are times when all of us need courage. And the question is, where do we get the courage that we need when we need it? Jeremiah, again, I said, he's known as the weeping prophet because in chapters four through six, he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over their spiritual condition. He knows that what they're looking for, he knows the solution. And he knows that if they would just turn to the Lord, that the Father would receive them with open arms and yet they refuse to do it. And many years later, there was another man. Some called him a prophet too. In fact, some people compared him to Jeremiah. His name, of course, was Jesus. And like Jeremiah, he was also persecuted by the, the religious leaders of his day. And he too wept over the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus stood on a hill over Jerusalem. He looked over the city and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus had a concern for truth and he had a deep love for people. And like Jeremiah, he was incredibly courageous. You know that on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus was scared. Do you know that? That Jesus was scared? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he sweat blood. Right? That means that he was so stressed, so anxious, that the capillaries in his face were breaking and blood was coming out of his pores. He was so afraid, so anxious about what awaited him that he sweat blood and he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, then please let this cup pass from me. But he finished with these words of incredible courage. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Let that be done. You know what always strikes me about that story? Here's Jesus sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had every opportunity to stand up and walk out of there before the authorities arrived, didn't he? He had every opportunity in the week leading up to that when he knew exactly what awaited him if he went to Jerusalem. He could have just walked away. He could have taken a different road, right? Like come to a fork in the road and take the other one, right? Go somewhere else. He had every opportunity to walk away and not have to go through those things that awaited him that obviously scared him. Betrayal, suffering, death on a cross, and even more than that, the cosmic suffering of having the sins of the world placed upon him and being cut off from the Father. Even there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have just stood up and walked away and saved himself from those things. But if he would have saved himself from what he feared, he wouldn't have been able to save us. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that it was because of the joy that was set before him that Jesus was able to endure the cross. Because of the joy Check this out, guys. This, this is the real deal. True courage doesn't come. True courage is not the absence of fear, but the presence of joy. I'll say that again. True courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of joy that enables you to see beyond the thing that you fear to that which gives you joy. See, Jesus was able to look beyond the suffering of the cross because he knew that if he died, he would save us. And that joy of being together with us, of eating and drinking with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth, that brought him joy. And that joy is what gave him the courage to look beyond what he was afraid of and to do what the Father called him to do. And you know this, that that same joy is available to you and me. 
that joy of being with him, of eating together, eating and drinking together with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be right finally, our true home that we long to get back to even though we've never been there before, the joy of being right with God, of knowing that you're loved and accepted by him, the joy of being able to put your head down to sleep at night and truly rest because you know that you are justified before God, that joy is what ultimately gives us the courage to face whatever is coming at us in this life because you're able to look beyond the things that scare you and see the joy on the other side and do it anyway. See, Jesus was courageous. He, he courageously went to the cross so that we who are fearful could have the courage of knowing that our future is secure in him. What can give you that kind of courage, right? That to do what God has called you to do, even if it freaks you out. It's that sense of knowing the big picture. It's that sense of being able to see beyond what scares you to the joy which awaits you because of what Jesus did for you. That perspective makes us brave. And it gives you the courage to follow God wherever he might call you, just like Jesus followed the Father. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you for your courage in the garden. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to see, you were able to look beyond that which caused you anxiety and fear, and you were able to see the joy on the other side, and that joy was being together with us. Lord, may we do the same thing in the things that you've called us to do in the areas where we're afraid. Lord, would you help us to see beyond the things that cause us anxiety and fear? and to see the joy that is on the other side, the joy that awaits us because we are secure in you. Lord, thank you for your courage. May you give us courage to respond to your callings on our lives. Lord, would you fill us with a love for the truth and a deep love for people? And would you help us that we would follow you and do what you ask of us courageously like Jeremiah and like Jesus? And thank you, Jesus, that you didn't shrink back in any way. Thank you that you courageously went to the cross for us. And Lord, would you please give us the courage to do what you call us to do as well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 